If you join me in Bible study this morning, we are resuming our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Last week, we read verse 1. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Last week we talked about who Silvanus was. He only appears in a few verses in Scripture. Unless you realize he's also called Silas. Then you realize he is all over the New Testament. We talked last week about how when Paul traveled, he always traveled with a Greek-speaking Jew. Who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts? Luke did. Luke traveled with Paul. Luke was not one of the twelve with Messiah. He learned about the gospel message from listening to Paul teach. So Luke is actually the gospel of Paul, as told from a second-hand source. And he always traveled, or frequently traveled, with Silas and with Barnabas, also Greek-speaking. But notice it says, Paul, Savannah, and Timothy. Timothy, we know from 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, right? Those were books that Paul wrote to Timothy, whom Paul considered his son in the faith. But do you realize how many other times Timothy is mentioned in the New Testament? Let's take a quick look. Let's go to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And we're going to see why Paul was quick to take Timothy with him. Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Then he, that's Paul, came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. So what language would Timothy have spoken? Both Hebrew and Greek. Oh, what a perfect traveling companion for Paul. No matter which group he's traveling to, he can speak in their own language. Verse 2, he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. So what they're trying to say is, would those Jewish audiences of unsaved people have listened to somebody that they considered a Greek, a Gentile? They would not have listened, right? They would have immediately tuned them all out. So they want to show that no, even though Timothy's father is Greek, Timothy himself is a Jewish person. Verse 4, and as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. Talking about Acts chapter 15. How is salvation? Salvation is by faith or circumcision. Which is it? By faith. What had the Jews been taught? That it was by circumcision. So Paul is trying to persuade them that they have been taught incorrectly by the scribes and Pharisees. Do you know how hard it is sometimes to persuade somebody they've been taught wrong? And then let's go to Acts chapter 17. So would Timothy have been considered a Hellenist? You can't say that for sure because a Hellenist would be a Greek-speaking Jew and I'm sure he would have been bilingual. 
So I don't know if I would have called him a Hellenist or not. Yeah, what are they going to assume if he comes speaking Greek? They're going to assume he's a Hellenist, aren't they? Right, so kind of that animosity. Yeah, so Paul is trying to keep barriers from forming between the speakers and the audience. Yeah. Acts chapter 17. You've heard of the Bereans, right? Acts chapter 17, verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. What book is written to those in Thessalonica? Thessalonians. And that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. If you go back to verse 10, it said Paul and Silas, but now we realize that Timothy's also there at Berea, even though they had not mentioned it before. Verse 15, so those who conducted Paul and brought him to Athens and received, receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come with him with all speed, they departed. So Timothy began traveling with Paul in chapter 16. In verse 17, he's still traveling with them. Go to Acts chapter 18, verse 5. Paul's at Corinth. It says in verse 4 of Acts 18, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Does that mean there were Gentiles in the synagogue? Yes, it does. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Yeshua is the Messiah. So Silas and Timothy both have come from Macedonia and joined Paul in his preaching to the people at Corinth. Then Acts chapter 19, verse 22. Timothy is still traveling. Acts chapter 19, verse 22. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Why did he send Timothy and Erastus to go preach in Macedonia? Because Timothy had the ability to speak to the Jews in Hebrew and to the Greeks in Greek. So he was a great minister to, to preach to anybody they came across. Or to which they traveled. Yes. Yep. So that's who Paul tended to take with him, those who could speak both Hebrew and Greek. If they couldn't speak Hebrew, then Paul couldn't talk to them and tell them what to share on. So it was important that they were all bilingual there. Acts chapter 20, verse 4. There's an uproar. And Paul himself has to go to Macedonia. Where do we leave Timothy? In Macedonia. 
So in verse 4, And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, that's to Turkey, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. They were traveling with Paul when it comes down to Acts 20, verse 7. Now on the first day of the week when the disciples gathered together to break bread. But look at those words. The five key words are first day of the week. Only two of those are in the Greek and that's of the. The Greek reads mia, ton, sabaton on one of the Sabbaths. So this group, are they celebrating in church on Sunday morning? No, they're gathering together at the synagogues as Acts 17 said Paul's custom was. Let's go to the book of Romans. Chapter 16. Verse 21. I just want you to see how intimately involved Timothy is in Paul's ministry here in the second missionary journey. Romans 16. Verse 21. How does Paul describe Timothy? Timothy, my fellow worker. What's he mean by my fellow worker? He means my fellow minister in the gospel. The one who helps me deliver the gospel message to all people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. In verse 16 it says, Therefore I urge you, imitate me for this reason. I have sent Timothy to you. For what reason? Is Timothy going to teach contrary to Paul? Is Timothy going to teach something different than Paul? No. Timothy's going to teach, let's imitate Paul who imitates Messiah. Therefore we all walk as Messiah walked. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Second Corinthians chapter 1. Oops, I have a chat out there. Let me. Paul was a Roman citizen, correct? Yes, that's correct. If so, what made him a citizen and not the other apostles? He was born a citizen. Most of the Jewish people were not citizens unless they bought citizenship, but Paul was born a Roman citizen. It doesn't tell us anything more than that. Isn't it because of where he was born? Were no. all the citizens of Tarsus citizens because they were part of the Roman Empire? I don't think that's why, but they never describe it. They never I don't explain think it. That's the case. It, see, Jerusalem, Israel was not a part of the Roman Empire. They were conquered being you know, dominated by, but the part that where Paul was was actually voluntarily part of the Roman Empire. Okay. I, I believe all those, I've read this history at some point, all of those citizens became citizens, even if one by birth, and then from their own by birth, because they were joining the Roman Empire, and so everything that was Roman pertained to them also. Okay. Fair enough. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Yeshua the Messiah by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So Paul is still ministering along with Timothy when he writes 2 Corinthians. 
Let's go to Philippians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So if somewhere between Ephesians and Colossians, you will find Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Yeshua the Messiah. So you see how joined at the hip Paul and Timothy are. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you shortly, that may also be encouraged when I know your state. So when Paul was not able to travel to a church to speak to them in person, he would often send Timothy in his place and say, listen to him as you would listen to me. Colossians, the next chapter, next book, Colossians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Yeshua the Messiah by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So they are joint authors, joint presenters, joint speakers, joint writers. They're joined at the hip almost. Now Philemon, which we mentioned last night, we almost never get to. I found a way to go there today. Philemon. Philemon is one of those really short books. Right before Hebrews. Don't ask me what chapter or you haven't found a chat. Philemon chapter 1 verse 1. Says Paul, a prisoner of Messiah Yeshua and Timothy our brother. How many of Paul's letters begin that way? Paul and Timothy. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. Many theologians say, we don't have any idea who wrote Hebrews. Yeah, I think we do. They don't, we do. They don't, we do, okay. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 23. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 23. Pat says, what is Paul's family history? Paul is from the tribe of Benjamin. He was born in the city of Tarsus in Cilicia. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, the grandson of Hillel I. That's what we know about his background. Hebrews 13, 23. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. So Timothy had been imprisoned, but has now been set free and will rejoin the author of Hebrews, whoever that might be. Yeah. The Apostle Paul. Yeah. So that's who Timothy is. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. To the church of the Thessalonians. Thessalonica is in Greece. An area that's known for pagan idolatry. How many of you in, in elementary school had to study the pantheon of Greek gods? Zeus and all those kind of folks. Yeah, that's Thessalon Thessalonica. 
And it was full of Greek culture, which means homosexuality, nudity, pornography, all that kind of stuff was what the Thessalonians grew up in and what Paul is trying to bring them out of. And God the Father and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, always intertwined, never separated. Grace to you and peace. Grace is a Greek greeting and peace is a Hebrew greeting. So there are people in Thessalonica from both the Gentile world and the Jewish world. And Paul and Timothy and Silas want to speak to them all. This is the first letter that Paul wrote. And we're going to see that every chapter of 1 Thessalonians talks about the rapture and resurrection. The Thessalonians, as you might expect, were under great persecution and pressure. Did we not just read about how the, there were those in the Thessalonian area, Thessalonica, that were so against the gospel message? So the believers are under great persecution. So Paul says you've got to hang in there because there is a goal coming. And you want to make sure that you're part of that goal. So verse 2 says, we give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers. Why does he say of you all? He wasn't from Georgia. All the believers in meaning whether Jew or Gentile. Paul addresses them as one group. He doesn't say there's two groups of you. I'm going to treat one one way and another another way, does he? What does Paul teach in Ephesians chapter 2? That once you're saved by faith, you are one new man, Jew and Gentile, one in Messiah, no longer separate. In Ephesians 4, does he say, continue to walk as Gentiles if you get saved out of the Gentile world? He says, no, don't do that. So let's go to Ephesians 2 and look at what Paul says, why he refers to them as a unified group. Normally we would start at verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2. Thank you. Yeah, Evan, that's what Dr. Bob just said. Yep, so you two agree. That Tarsus was a Roman-ordered city and those born there were just automatically given citizenship. Okay. In Ephesians 2, verse 1 says the Gentile believers are being looked down upon by the Jewish believers as second-class citizens. And Paul's saying that is not right. One is no better than the other. So at that time, before you got saved, it's true that you were aliens from the Commonwealth of Israel. You weren't part of us. You were also strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no part in the covenants. And therefore you were without hope, without God in the world. Do you realize that God is a God of covenants? We have in here in the past covered all the different covenants. What covenant are you a part of in here? You're part of the new covenant. What if you're not in the new covenant? then you're not in covenantal relationship with God. So you got to fix it. So that's where verse 13 comes in. But now, you used to be strangers from the covenants, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, but now 
once you've been saved, the Messiah Yeshua, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. For he himself is our peace. That is between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. Maybe before we got saved, we didn't like each other. But now you got to get over it. you got to get over it. I don't care if you're black or white, man or woman, Jew or Gentile. Whether you stand on two feet or on your head. Once you've been saved, we are all one in Messiah. So don't look down on a brother or sister in Messiah. For he is himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. That middle wall of separation was what told the Jewish people they could not go out to the Gentile world. They couldn't even go out to share the gospel with them. Messiah broke that wall down. That was in Acts chapter 10. That's the vision that Peter got. Keep a finger here, go to Acts chapter 10. Does Acts chapter 10 say it's okay to eat pigs? No. If you think that, you need to go back and read Acts chapter 10 a little more closely. Acts chapter 10 says in verse 34, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, that is between Jews and Gentiles, but in every nation... Whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. People don't like that verse. Whoever fears him means what? Will be obedient to his commandments. And works righteousness. Righteousness is the opposite of lawlessness. So whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. What if you don't? What if you say, commandments, no, nah, they don't apply. They, 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 they've been done away with. They're not for today. They're not for us. I'd read that verse again and be very afraid. But back to Ephesians 2, since you kept a finger there, right? Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Enmity means hatred that separates. And then comes a difference between a Bible based upon the Textus Receptus and one based upon the Westcott Hort text. It should read, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That word ordinances is dogma in Greek, D-O-G-M-A, and it never refers to God's commandments. It refers to man-made rules and regulations. The NIV and the other Bibles based upon Westcott Hort leave out contained in ordinances. So they just read, that is the law of commandments. To make you think, therefore, that the commandments have been abolished. It says, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, making peace. What he abolished was that man-made rule that said Jewish people can't associate with Gentile people. God didn't create that rule. Rabbis did. I'm in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. Where are you? I was at Acts 10, 34, 35. We were there. She was one stop. She missed. Go back to where you left a finger. Okay. There you go. Sorry. When I get too far ahead, just say, whoa. Yeah, lost me. Okay. Verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God, that is Jew and Gentile. Mo both must be reconciled to God. That wasn't Jewish 
theology. Jewish theology is that we are sinless and perfect and the Gentiles, they're unclean pigs. And Paul said, nope, uh-uh. They thought that their choosing automatically meant they would be redeemed. God yep. chose me, so must, everything must be okay. Because I'm circumcised, I'm saved. Okay. Yeah. Is that true? It is what they believe, but it was not true. That's the beginning. <laughs> yeah. So verse 19, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners. What were you strangers from? The covenants of promise. If you're no longer strangers from the covenants of promise, that means you are part of, participants in. And foreigners, you are foreigners or aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You are no longer estranged from the commonwealth of Israel. You are part of the commonwealth of Israel. Another way to say that is the children of Israel or the house of Israel, the commonwealth of Israel, common terms. But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. All right, back to... First Thessalonians. You know, Wayne, um, I guess the thought I just had was that I've seen that over the decades as I've grown um, matured in the faith. Mm -hmm. And that is that you can meet people anywhere and on the street, grocery stores, whatever. And, it, you know, the Holy Spirit draws us together because we recognize that spirit and you begin, begin talking with the person and you don't really know anything about them per se and yet the Holy Spirit recognizes itself in the other person uh -huh. and, and that's what I see in the scripture you just went through just now. Yes ma'am. Excellent. Back to First Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3. Remembering you without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Yeshua the Messiah in the sight of our God and Father. Hmm. Those three words, faith, love, and hope. Do we just read over them or do they have deep meanings for us? Let's start with faith. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. How important is faith? It's the cornerstone of your belief. Verse 6, Hebrews 11, 6. But without faith, it is hard to please God. No, it is impossible, meaning it's not possible. <laughs> There's really no other way to say that. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is. First of all, if you don't believe there is a God, stop telling me you have faith in him. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Is there a difference between diligently seek and casually seek. Oh yeah, a big difference. The word in Greek here is pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. -I Greek word 4102. And it means a truly deep conviction 
of the truth. The Hebrew equivalent of that is imunah. Imunah. Meaning it comes from the same word used in Genesis 15 verse 6. Which is why Paul uses this example from Genesis 15 verse 6 across his writings in the New Testament. He keeps saying, point back to our father Abraham. Was Abraham a Jew? No. Was Abraham saved by faith? Yes. Was that faith a... Well, there could be a God out there somewhere. There may be a a higher force in the universe than me. No. Look at verse 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted to him for righteousness. I will tell you again that Hebrew word is he-amin. H-e apostrophe. E-m-i-n. And it means God said it. I believe it. That's it. H-E apostrophe E-M-I-N from which we get our English word Amen which isn't English at all it's a Hebrew word transliterated it means God said it I believe it that ends it that settles it if you look at what it comes from God told Abraham that the descendants that come from your body will be more numerous than the stars in the heavens. Abraham had no kids. Abraham had been complaining to God that my heir is going to be a servant that was born in my house. And God said, now you're going to have so many descendants you can't possibly count them. And Abraham said, all right then, I believe it. And God accounted to him for righteousness. When God says something is forever, and you say, no, it's not. It went away 2,000 years ago. Are you believing God that every word he said will come to pass? What did Messiah say in Matthew 4.4? 4? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Yeah. That's what this faith is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. That's what this believed is in Genesis 15, verse 6. God said it. That's it. Go to the book of James, chapter 2. James, chapter 2. There's a difference between saying, I believe it, and believing it. James chapter 2, verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. What does it profit? Meaning, what good is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can faith save him? He doesn't mean can faith save him. He means can an empty declaration of faith, which isn't borne out by your actions, what saves? What does God look at to decide if your faith is real or not? Do you follow through and do what you say you're going to do? 
let's go back to the example of Abraham. But keep a finger in James chapter 2 because we're going to come back. Usually I forget to tell you that until we've already gone. But this time, we're coming back to James 2. Go back to the book of Genesis. Chapter 15, verse 6. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now go to chapter 21 of Genesis. God told Abraham to take his son, his only son, to a mountain called Moriah and offer him there as a sacrifice. And in chapter 22, verse 12, as Isaac is bound on the altar and Abraham raises the knife, We'll start in verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Avraham, Avraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Now I know. Well, in chapter 15, it said he believed God and God accounted him for righteousness. And now God says, now I know what's changed. Abraham's actions testify to the truth of the fact that he believes. But you know, this was more of an affirmation for Abraham to hear it from God that yep. this is, you are a, this, you know, your faith is real. Because yep. God knew. Oh, God knew back in 15, but you're right. It's not just for Abraham, but I'd say it's for you and me. Right. How does God judge whether our faith is real or not? By our actions. And then turn a couple more pages to Genesis chapter 26. Just a few more pages. Before you go there. Before I go there. The point that you were just making can also illustrate that even though Abraham, or Abraham has the faith, a blood sacrifice is still required that the blood sacrifice in here proved his faith, but also gave him the covering. And so his faith really is in Messiah, who shed his blood, and that's mm -hmm. the Akidah, the story. But so many people think, I have faith. Everything's okay. No. The faith is grounded in something. You can't just say, I believe in God. Everybody believes in God's going to heaven. So you're saying, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. You've got yep. to go into the whole story. Yep. And that, you know, we go from Genesis to Revelation, you do that very well. Because it's the whole story of our faith and our believing and our everything that you're developing. Yeah. Be careful about taking one verse and making a doctrine out of it without looking at the others. Yeah, because it's the whole Bible that counts, not that verse. Yep. So now in Genesis chapter 26, it just reinforces all that we've just said. God speaking to whom here in Genesis 26? To Isaac, the son of Abraham. Verse 4. 
And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations here shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So God tells us on multiple occasions that God tests our actions to prove what our hearts really believe. Now back to James chapter 2 verse 20. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Notice he doesn't say, but do you know? He says, but do you want to know? Lots of people out there would say, no, I don't want to know. I'm happy in my ignorance. But God says, do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? By foolish man, is he talking to believers? No, he's talking to people who think they're believers and they're not. And then same chapter, verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Just what we read in Genesis. You can say anything. But the question is, what do you truly believe? Your actions will bear out what you truly believe. Where your faith truly lies. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, after faith came love. Let's go to the book of John, chapter 14, verse 15. Y'all are going, well, gee, that's a shocker, right? John 14, 15, that's our website. So you know that verse. But it's a very important verse. If you love me, comma what? Keep my commandments. Why? What does keeping God's commandments prove? Let's go to verses 23 and 24 in the same chapter. Yeshua answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. What are the Ten Commandments actually called in Hebrew? The Ten Words. So he will keep my word, me, he will keep my commandments. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. How do they do that? Through the Holy Spirit indwelling us. He who does not love me, does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. That verse tells us that Messiah did not come to set aside, break, or abolish the commandments of God. But he came to fully preach them, to teach them, to make sure we completely understood them. Why? Because there were so many false teachers in the world. John chapter 15 Start in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. What kind of vine are we talking about? Poison ivy? Grapevine. Grapevine. That's right. 
Grapevines were something well known to the people to whom Messiah is speaking, the people in Israel. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Notice it doesn't say every branch who's not in me. He says every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. How many of you have seen a grapevine? Many of you probably have grapevines on your property like we do. Have you ever seen a bunch of grapes that were not attached to the vine, lying on the ground, continuing to grow and prosper? Uh, no. What happens when it gets separated from the vine? It shrivels and dies, doesn't it? So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, meaning the little stems upon which the grapes grow. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. I want you to notice something that you will not hear from many pulpits. If anyone does not abide in me, it means they used to be attached. They used to be in the vine. They chose to no longer be in the vine. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Does that harken back to Proverbs 28, 9? If you turn your ear away from hearing the law, what's your prayer? An abomination. If you want your prayers to be answered, abide in Messiah. Keep his words. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. What did he say in John 14, 15? If you love me, keep my commandments. Abide in my love means to keep my commandments. How do I know? Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Which scripture tells us how we love our brothers? It's in Leviticus 19, but it's also 1 John chapter 5, right? Keep a finger here, go to 1 John chapter 5. It's in the Old Testament and the New. That's exactly right. And that's, of course, my point. Does the Old Testament teach a different gospel than the New Testament? It does not. 1 John chapter 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. Is that what it says? Take a look. That's what it says. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So if you go back to John chapter 15, if you love one another, 
1 John chapter 5, verse 2 means you do that through keeping the commandments of God. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you what? Do whatever I command you. Wow. Go to 2 John. 2 John. Second John 1 6. Yeah, we go to First John a lot. We rarely get to go to Second John, so let's visit Second John. Chapter 1, verse 6. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. That you have heard from the beginning. Does that mean God's law changed over time? Nope. How many times have you heard, well, God needs to keep up with the times? No, we need to keep up with God. He doesn't need to keep up with me. People also say Messiah gave a new commandment to love one another. It's from Leviticus chapter 19. So the word new and new commandment is that neos or it's kainos, which means renewed, meaning why don't you give it a try? Yeah. It's like when you go out and buy a new used car. It may be used, but it's new to you. So Messiah kind of tongue-in-cheek says, it's been a commandment from the beginning. Why don't you give it a try? You might like it. If we go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, we talked about faith, we talked about love, now let's talk about hope. Let's go to Romans chapter 8, verse 24. Romans 8, 24. Somebody recently said in a letter, in the New Testament, it's not about what you do. It's about your attitudes. Well, if you have a right attitude, you're going to do right. If you have the right attitude, you will do right. That's exactly what God's trying to tell us, right? <laughs> yeah. Chapter 8 of Romans, verse 24. But we were saved in this hope. What hope? The rapture and the resurrection. The coming of the kingdom. That's in verse 24. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Which means we must anticipate and look forward to the rapture and the resurrection. The established the messianic kingdom. Where there's no war, there's no hurt in my holy mountain, God says. Even the animals don't hurt each other, much less us. That's the carrot at the end. That's why Paul in every chapter of 1 Thessalonians is going to point us to the second coming of Messiah, the rapture and the resurrection, the coming of the kingdom, to give us the encouragement to withstand persecution. If you were here last night, we talked about one of the parables of Messiah about the four kinds of hearts, the parable of the sower. 
The most dangerous one was when the seed fell amongst the thorns. And when persecution and hard times rise up, the plant tends to die. Are there hard times coming? There most certainly are. Can we give up? No. Can we lose our faith? No. Can we depart from the vine? No. So you've got to make a decision now. And as the persecution increases, will I stand strong or will I cave? So you've got Romans chapter 15 verse 4. I love this verse. I'm going to have Becky make me a t-shirt of this from one of these days. She's making, I said one of these days because I got so many t-shirts she's made me. <laughs> but this one's coming. Whatever things were written before. What's he mean before? The Old Testament. You have the Tanakh. Were written for our learning. How many times do your preachers say, don't read the Old Testament? That's not for us. They were written for our learning. That we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Does the Old Testament prove that God keeps his word? Over and over and over again. But, if you want God to bless you, can you walk away from God? No, you must stay abiding in the vine, as we read in the book of John. How about Galatians chapter 5? If you don't want to get wet, you need to stay under the umbrella. That's true. And if you don't want to get burned, stay out of the fire. There you go. Well, yours was a better analogy, but okay. <laughs> Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Galatians chapter 5. We all know Galatians teaches us we don't have to keep the commandments of God, right? We heard that all our lives. Is that what it teaches? Right. No, quite the opposite. Galatians chapter 5, verse 5. That's what Satan teaches. Yeah. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait. How do we wait? Eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. The traditional church doctrine says if you've walked down the aisle and repeated after the preacher, you are righteous and that's the way God sees you. Because God doesn't see you, he sees Messiah's righteousness in you. So he'll never see your sin. That's why you don't have to repent. What does this say though? For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. What did we just read? That if you already have it, you're not hoping for it. So this hope is that when the trumpet blows, we get to go home. How many are looking forward to that trumpet blowing? There's a special crown set aside for you if you're looking for that trumpet to blow. I'm looking forward to that crown. Colossians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians is right before 1 Thessalonians. Colossians chapter 1 verse 23 begins with the word if. So let me let you get there. 
And we can't start in the middle of a sentence, so we'll start in verse 21. But our key verse is 23. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, is that before you were saved or after? That was before. Yet now he has reconciled you. That's after. You've been forgiven. In the body of his flesh through death, that is through his death, burial, and resurrection, to present you holy and blameless. Does the scripture tell us that's what Messiah is looking for in a bride? Is that they be without spot or blemish? And above reproach in his sight, if, if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. I hear preacher after preacher say it's not possible to walk away. Then why does Paul keep saying if you don't walk away? Acts chapter 24. Doesn't it seem like that, that scripture ties right to Hebrews 6 that talks about... You know, it ties right to Hebrews 6 about once you're enlightened, if you walk away, it's impossible to be reconciled again, right? It says you put aside to an open shame because it's like saying what he did for me means absolutely nothing. Yeah. Worse than that, you're saying... He wasn't truly who he said he was. He died as a sinner. Oh, that's blasphemy of the worst kind. Yeah. Acts 24. Yeah, the Muslims preached that after he died, he became a Muslim. They preached that he never was crucified on the cross. Yeah, that he didn't die. They've got all sorts of... All sorts of error. Yeah. Yep. Acts 24.15. I have hope in God. Why? Back up a verse. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God. What did we read next in Romans chapter 15 verse 4? If you believe the law and the prophets, they cause you to have hope in Messiah. They cause you to know that God's word is true and faithful and that God does not change. So it says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. What in the law and the prophets teaches a resurrection? Well, Daniel, 12 says there will be a Daniel 12, verse 2. How about Isaiah chapter 26? all over the place. What did Dan, uh, David say in the Psalms? Yeah, there's teachings of the resurrection and the rapture all over the Old Testament. Why didn't people understand the rapture and the resurrection go hand in hand in the Old Testament? Because they didn't know what the church was, right? Hadn't even been revealed yet. But we know. Okay. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. 
knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Does this mean that God decided before the creation of the world who would go to heaven and who's going to go to the lake of fire? No. The answer is no. Yeah, election. Let's go to Acts chapter 9 and see what he means by election. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. You know, of course, Acts chapter 9 is about the salvation of the Apostle Paul. Otherwise, in Hebrew, known as Rav Shaul. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine. That word chosen means he is by election. And that's all election means, is God chose. To bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. He's been dealing it out. God says he's going to have to suffer the same kind of persecution. Romans chapter 9, verse 11. Not everyone is elect. God's plan requires election, Paul was chosen. Yeah. And God knew him before he was born. Yeah. But that didn't mean that every Tom, Dick, and Harry was chosen and elected before they were born to go to hell or to go to heaven. Yeah. It doesn't mean that. Right. It means God had criteria. Has a, and he has a plan. Yeah. Those that saved will go on into the eternal kingdom. Those that are lost will go into the lake of fire. You get to decide which group you're in. You reject God, you just rejected your election. Yep, Romans 9.11. But we have to back up, not start in the middle of a sentence. So we'll start in verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. If they're not all Israel who are of Israel, what are the others? The others are Jacob. Jacob are those who have no faith. Israel are those that are saved by faith. Nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham, but, quote, in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, that is, trying to earn salvation by their own works. These are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. The children of the promise, meaning those that are saved by faith. For this is the word of promise. At this time I shall come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet having been born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. In other words, what? Does God have to wait to see what you're going to do? 
Does God have to wait to see whether you'll be saved by faith or whether you reject him? No, he knows. He knows. And who were the two children? Jacob and Esau. Are Esau's descendants in the Bible godly people of faith? Or are they idol-worshipping, sexually immoral, haters of God? Romans 11, 5 to 7. Even so, then at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. If by grace, then it's no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Boy, those are confusing words. But when it comes down to it and sort it all out, it is. Even though they all call themselves Israel, some seek it by the works of their hands, and others seek it by faith. So the elect are those that have chosen to come to God by faith. The rest that were blinded are those that say, we're saved by circumcision. We don't need to accept Messiah. We don't need to be saved by faith. God's got to take us. It's like a sorority or fraternity where your mother or father was part of it and you automatically have to be accepted. Isn't that what Messiah said? Don't tell me that you have Abraham as your father. He's saying, don't tell me that that's the way of salvation. God doesn't have any grandchildren. And that's the point of the election. The elect are those who come to God by faith. Those that are non-elect are those that say, nope, uh-uh, we'll find our own way. Thank you very much. Romans 11, verse 28, concerning the gospel, they, that is the ungodly, are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, simply means that there is going to be a remnant in Israel that will be saved by faith. Has that turned out to be true? It has. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. I don't really understand that last one. Well, I think Second Peter 1 is going to help us understand it. Yeah, because concerning election, it sounds like the Jews are going to be saved anyhow. Not all. Remember, two-thirds are going to die in the tribulation period. Yeah, but I'm just saying that's until we get more understanding there, that one verse can be taken out of context. Yep. So let's go to Second Peter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Why do we have to make our call and election more sure? That is, 
we have to demonstrate the faith. We have to live it. It's not that God put us on a list back there and said, I don't care what they do, they're coming in. And that's the doctrine of some. Those that, that follow a particular form of Calvinism, not all Calvinists, but a certain form say, you can be the worst murderer and rapist in the world, and if you're on God's list, you're in heaven. You don't even have to believe there's a God. I mean, putting those two verses together, and again, going back to your beginning teaching on election, election doesn't mean that you are in. Right. It means you are chosen. Now do something about it. You still have to cooperate with God. Yeah. Election is a category. Those that are saved by faith. Now do you want to be in it or not? So, to me, it's not a list of names. Dr. Bob shall be saved no matter what. It's that all those who are saved by faith, they're coming into the kingdom. Now, God said in Deuteronomy 30, I've said before you, life and death, choose life. He said in Isaiah 66, my hand of protection to my servants, my wrath to my enemies, now choose. Do you want to be elect or not? I've never heard election explained and, and brought out scripturally like this. And I have heard it in uh, churches I used to attend, uh, probably the Presbyterian faith, that it's a, it's a doctrine of man when you pull it out of context and then you tell people it means this. It's just like the verse about having your consciences sprinkled and we have a church group that thinks that sprinkling, sprinkling infants confirms that they're going to heaven and when they die. Wrong kind of sprinkling. It's, pull, it's pulling and, and wrong doctrine is pulling anything out of scripture and not contextualizing it. Right. It's, just, it's always wrong if you do that. Yeah, go back to the 4th century when the Catholic Church started the councils. They invited all the bishops from around the world unless they were born Jewish. If they're born Jewish, they can't come. So you've got nobody that knows the context or the language. There. Taking verses and saying, well, this is what I think it means, and now you all have to believe it. When you call somebody like me, I'm a heretic. I admit it, I know it. Heretic just means I disagree with the majority view. So Wayne, I, yes, I always heard it um, taught, chosen, it's like you're, um, you accept the Lord and you're going through a doorway and then you, you're following his path and then you look and behind, behind you on the back of the top of the door it says chosen elect. or elect. And you don't really know it until you look back and see. But what does 2 Peter 1, verse 10 teach us? That you have to make your election sure. That is, you have to be saved by faith. You have to remain on the path. Yes. And you're following that way, and you're going that way, that pathway, and you're right. continuing to go that way. Right. That pathway is established for those of faith. Right. And then John says, I've written these things so that you may know. So it's, we don't have to wait till after we die to find out. We know that God has 
collected us, chosen us, and loved us because he's placed his Holy Spirit in us. Yep. But we still have to make our election sure because we can still, Paul says, I guard myself yep. lest I fall yep. and be saved over. Yep. Go back to Romans 11. Yep. Teach that you can't fall away. That that means that a whole lot of what Paul said was not didn't need to be said. Yeah. But, you know, when you were talking about Romans 11, 5 through 7, um, I keep remembering the, the verse about where the Lord says, Oh, I knew you not. Yep. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it all goes back to the free will. Yeah. You know, we, we may be, um, think we're choosing the path that we're supposed to be on, that the Lord has called us into, but it all goes back to free will because he loves us enough to say, I've chosen you, what are you going to do about it? Yep, and the broad path is the wrong path, right? Yes, sir. Yep. Yeah. So back in Romans 11, let's go to verse 19. Even verse 17, we'll start even earlier. And as some of the branches were broken <laughs> off, not all the branches, some of the branches, referring to the Jewish people. Which branches were broken off the tree? Fruitless ones. Fruitless ones, the ones without faith we're going to find. And you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches, that is, the branches that were broken off. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. So they were on the tree. What caused them to be broken off? Unbelief, lack of faith. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. So if you're grafted in the tree by faith, how can they say he may not spare you either? What if you stop believing? Then you're broken off and cast off. You're in the tree not because you were on some list before the world was created, but because you have the faith that allows you to be grafted in the tree. Verse 22, therefore consider the goodness and severity of God and those who fail, severity. But towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. So what's the point? That tree representing Israel are made up of the branches that are saved by faith, whether they were born Jews or Gentiles. If you want to remain in the tree, you maintain your faith. What if somebody comes through that door in three minutes and puts a sword to your throat and says, renounce Messiah or die? You meet the Lord quickly. You say, you can't threaten me with heaven. Right? Let's just go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. 
as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. What's he mean? It did not come to you in word only. It was not empty, right? It was a message that was full of hope, and it's full of hope and love and grace and faith. But what's he mean? As you know what kind of men we were among you. That's important here. That's the key to this verse in my view. Go back to Matthew 7. Matthew 7. Messiah told us how to tell a true teacher from a false teacher. In Matthew 7. Verses 15 to 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. What's ravenous mean? Hungry, and the sheep are in real trouble, right? You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their works you will know them. So what's Paul saying in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1? Did Paul and Timothy and Silas come amongst them committing sins and walking in immorality? Bowing down to idols? No. They came demonstrating obedience to God's commandments out of love and out of faith. Yes, Daniel. Oh. Carry on then. Verse 6. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. And you became followers of us and the Lord. Having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. What does he mean you became followers of us? Became imitators. Go to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Oops, I got a chat here. Let's see if what the question is. Oh, it's a big, long question. Uh-huh. Yipper. Okay. First Corinthians 11.1. 1. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Messiah. So he's just said, you know how we lived amongst you? And you started to follow God, watching our example, doing as we do. 1 Corinthians 5, what was he teaching them to do to keep the Passover? Is this the only verse that tells us we should walk like Messiah walked? Or do we also have 1 John chapter 2, verse 6? Yes, that one. Let's go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. He who says he abides in him. Boy, that's a familiar verse from John 15, right? A familiar word. Ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Didn't he break Shabbat and observe Sunday morning and eat pigs and shrimps and lobsters and stuff? Of course not. So we should walk as he walked. 
demonstrating our love for God. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're up to verse 7. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. So they saw Paul, Timothy, and Silas walk as the Lord walked. And they began to walk as Paul, Timothy, and Silas walked because they walked as the Lord walked. And because of their walk, they become examples to all Macedonia, all of Greece, and Achaia who believe. Is that not what we're supposed to be? Examples? Light to the world? Salt to the earth? So that people can learn from our example? Verse 8 says, For, what does for mean? Because. From you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. They pick up the mantle of Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Paul, Timothy, and Silas taught them. They're teaching others. And it's like rays of the sun radiating out. As you learn, you teach others. And then they teach others. And they teach others. My old idiom was what? When you find somebody who knows less than you do, teach them. When you find somebody who knows more than you, learn from them. And together we just keep building up the body of Messiah. Amen. So verse 8, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. That is, their places that Paul doesn't have to go and preach because people have gotten saved listening to the witness and testimony of the Thessalonians. Verse 9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Yeshua, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen. So look at verse 9. They themselves declare, to declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. They tell others about how Paul, Timothy, Silas came and taught them and showed them examples, taught them how to live, how to serve the Lord, how to love the Lord, how to be obedient to the Lord. Let's go to Leviticus 19.4. Leviticus 19.4. They taught them to turn from idols to serve the true and living God. Verse 4 of Leviticus 19 says, Do not turn to idols, nor make yourselves molded gods. I am the Lord your God. So the commandment is do not turn to idols. And Paul's taught them to turn from idols. What do we call that? Repentance. Repentance. Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4, 29 to 31. 
You've all heard the theological term syncretism. Syncretism is when we take that which is from pagan idolatry and use it to worship the Lord our God, to mix it in to what's called today Christianity. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 29 to 31. But you, from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you're in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. What happens when we repent? We confess our sins and turn to God. He's faithful and just forgive us. But that's in the New Testament. Is that true here in the Old? Yep. Yeah. It says the same thing. I haven't counted, but I would bet if we did, it'd be over 100. Either turn or return. Yeah. You mean the message of every prophet is, and who's going to be president in 2024? No, it's repent and turn back to God and be saved. You wouldn't have needed prophets if the people had been following God. You wouldn't have, why would God send the prophet to people who were serving and worshiping him? Yeah. Deuteronomy 30, verses 9 to 11. Deuteronomy 30, verses 9 to 11. The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers if. There's that little word again. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law, and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, this is written about the future. This is written about coming back to the Lord in the day of the Lord. Right. Yes, ma'am. Put the last verse and this verse together. In the latter days, when everything's going to come on you, you basically just have to turn to God that you're already with God. Right? I didn't quite catch all of that. When it comes to the day of the Lord, it begins with the tribulation period. And God calling the world to repent and to return to him. And that when they do, then all these blessings will come upon them. But what if they don't turn to him? They get destroyed. But my point is, this is a verse that is a future prophecy not yet fulfilled. And it says, if you, if, which, and his statutes which are written in what? This book of the law, which is Deuteronomy. So it has not changed. The commandments of God yesterday are the commandments of God today, are the commandments of God tomorrow. Last night we were talking about circumcision of the heart. And it all ties together with this. When you, when you become circumcised in heart, you want to obey 
Yeah. It all ties together with this. When you get circumcised of the heart, you want to obey. It's your heart's desire. Why do you associate Deuteronomy 30 with circumcision of the heart? Look at verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. That's exactly what this means. When you return to the Lord with your whole heart and desire to be obedient to him, that is circumcision of the heart. Messiah is the goal of the law. You mean he didn't end it? No, no it's the goal. I mean, that's the whole book of Deuteronomy is saying this is the essence of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Circumcise your heart. Keep his commandments to demonstrate your love. And that's the essence of Torah. That is the essence of Torah. Is it not what Solomon tells us in the end of Ecclesiastes? What is man's all? Fear God and keep his commandments. Uh, so, let us draw a five-point outline from verses 9 and 10 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. What's God trying to teach us? According to the Liberty Bible Commentary, volume 2, this one right here, there are five basic tenets of Christianity that develop from this chapter. These two verses in particular. Number one, turn from idols to God. Is there any idolatry in the world today? Do they paint eggs? Do they put up decorated trees? Are there churches of Satan meeting in Meeks Park in Blairsville, Georgia? Turn from idols to God. That's what they did in Thessalonica. Number two, worship God. To turn to God means to worship God. To worship God means to serve him. Be his servant, not his enemy. Number three, look at verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven. What's that mean? Wait, watch for the second coming. Which begins with the rapture and resurrection. And then seven years later, the return for him again and establishment of the kingdom. Whom he raised from the dead, even Yeshua, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Delivers us from. Ek. What does the word ek mean? Out of, not through. Who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we don't have to go through that wrath. That's number three. Hope in the second coming. Number four. Believe in the resurrection of Yeshua. Says in verse 10, whom he raised from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, What if he didn't rise from the dead? What would that do to our faith? Our faith would be futile, would be absolutely worthless. People talk all the time about the death of Messiah, but don't forget the resurrection. If he had just died and was buried and he's still in the tomb, we're in trouble. But it says, Who raised us from the dead? And who delivers us from the wrath to come. Point five. Faith and salvation from the wrath of God. Which will surely come upon all those. Who do not accept Yeshua. I mean that's a lot to stick in these two verses isn't it. But it's all right here. They turned. From the worship of idols. To serve the true and living God. They wait for Messiah's second coming. To wait for means to anticipate, to look forward to, to long for it. 
One of these days you may get a teaching on is it okay to really want to love this world and hold on to it and continue here? I hear lots of people who claim to be Christians tell me every fall, Wayne, I don't want the rapture to come. I've got a beautiful house. I've got nice cars. I've got a beach house. I've got a yacht in the harbor. I don't want the Lord to come. Um, be careful about loving the world. What is love of the world? It's enmity from God. Uh, yes, sir. Um, Could you go back over what the, the fifth, uh, fifth one was? Faith and salvation? Fifth was faith and salvation from the wrath of God. That is, the rapture and resurrection keeps us from going through the tribulation, which will surely come upon all those who do not accept Yeshua. Even in the tribulation period, do people have a choice, repent or not? In, Levit in Revelation chapter 16, do they not say, we know where this is coming from, but pff, we're not repenting anyway? Too many, too many. Let's take a little bit of look at the last part of verse 10, the wrath to come. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 3. What do we mean by wrath? Does it mean God's a little unhappy? Matthew 3. Matthew chapter 3 verse 7. John the Baptist is baptizing down at the Jordan River, preaching, Repent, for the king of heaven is at hand. Here come many of the Pharisees and Sadducees saying, Oh, we want to be baptized too, so we can be forgiven of our sins. And what does John say? But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Is there a relationship between repentance and whether or not you suffer the wrath to come? That's what he's trying to tell us. Go to Luke 21. Luke 21. But Wayne, God wants us to walk in sin today. There's nothing in the scripture that suggests that. Nothing at all. Luke 21, verse 23. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days, talking about the tribulation period. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. So the wrath he's delivering us from is the wrath that falls in the tribulation period. Did the scripture say he will protect us as we go through it? Or that he will take us out so that we don't go through it. It is the latter. Go to John chapter 3. Verse 36. He who believes in the Son. And we know what that word believe means, don't we? has everlasting life. 
He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So who does the wrath of God abide on? The believer or the non-believer? Is on the non-believer. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. I hear too many theologians say there's not a single verse that says there's a rapture or that we're going to avoid the wrath of God. I can't find a verse that says God's going to make his children suffer the wrath of God. Can you? I can't think of one. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Boy, that's a mouthful. It means those who walk in lawlessness. Like Matthew chapter 7 verse 23 says. Nowhere does it say here that the wrath of God is revealed upon his children so that they can suffer. Romans chapter 2 verse 5. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart. What does impenitent mean? It means unrepentant. You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Again, is the wrath upon his children or his enemies? Yes, ma'am. Luke 21, 36, she says. Let me turn back there. Luke 21, 36. Luke 21.36. I'm turning there now. Luke 21.36 says, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Watch therefore, that is keep yourself on the right path, watching for Messiah's return. Keep your faith in God's promise and pray. Pray for what? Pray for a million dollars to come raining down from heaven? No. Pray that you will be righteous in God's eyes when the time comes. That you will stay on that path. Did Messiah teach us to pray always? Pray without ceasing? To make sure we stay connected to God and on the right path. Yeah. If you go back just to verse 34 at the end of it, it says, uh, so that the day um, come, in other words, you're not surprised by what has happened. It's right. The day to come 
Yep, it's going to refer us to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll go there in a minute. You're right, it does. Romans chapter 5 verse 9. Romans chapter 5 verse 9. Much more than, ooh, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. Through him. Not saved through the wrath, but saved from the wrath. Do you have the Greek up? Okay. Is that word from ek or apo? <coughs> Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Yeah, I thought this one was oppo. Oppo means what? That we will not go through the wrath of God. It's a state of separation from it. We will be separated from the wrath of God. How are we separated from the wrath of God? We are taken up to the bridal chambers described in Isaiah chapter 26. No way can you read this and say, this means we're going to go through the wrath of God. That's not what apo means. It means separated from. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You guys knew we had to get there. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Don't be caught unawares. Verse 5 says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. How can you read that and say, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but he wants us to go through it and make sure we do. Is that not the opposite of what it says? It is, in fact. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So you don't have an appointment to drop in to welcome? <laughs> <laughs> That's what the teaching is in the world. Yeah. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, 4. What does 4 mean? Because. Is this a new topic? No. Because you yourselves know, brethren that our coming to you was not in vain. That means people got saved. We didn't come preach to you and you all reject it. You accepted the teaching. You got saved. You turned from idols to serve the true and living God. You turned and accepted the blood of Messiah as your atonement. Not just atonement, but your propitiation. The price has been paid. What price? The wages of sin is death. He paid that for us. He died. Verse 2, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi. What happened to them at Philippi? They were spitefully treated. As you know, 
We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. He says, the fact that we were treated so badly at Philippi did not keep us from preaching the gospel to you with power, with authority, with confidence, in faith, because we know that the gospel has the power to change lives. That word gospel is evangelium. Let's go to Matthew 4.23. Matthew 4.23. You know Matthew 4.4 4 is man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So you know Matthew 4.23 is not going to contradict that. But it tells us what Messiah went about all Galilee teaching. Matthew 4.23 What had John the Baptist been teaching? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4.17 Yeshua began to preach and to say Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now I want you to look at verse 23 which is why we came here. And Yeshua went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues preaching the gospel of the kingdom. What is the gospel of the kingdom? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you want to be part of the kingdom? Repent. That goes with Paul in Ephesians 4.17. Don't continue to walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Repent. Go to Matthew 9. Verse 35. Then Yeshua went about all the cities and villages, teaching in all their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. What was he preaching? The gospel of the kingdom. Luke has a question. It says, when the Lord uses the word wrath in scripture, is it only used to describe the tribulation? He answered, no. It means whenever God pours out his judgment in fury. It's not just about the tribulation. He never uses it to describe the tribulations we go through on a daily basis as we get persecuted by non-believers. He never uses it that way. We did Matthew 9.35. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 is about the day of the Lord and what occurs during the tribulation period and leading into the kingdom. And in Matthew 24, 14, it says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. That word end is telos, meaning the goal. The establishment of the messianic kingdom. But what is going to be preached to the whole world? The gospel of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How many times does the word repent appear in the New Testament? Almost 60 times. Is it 58? 60-ish? 
Late 50s, early 60s, yes, that's true. You know, Wayne, I was just thinking about... Uh-huh. Well, this is kind of a different way for me to be... Oh, what I learned as a child and growing up in the wonderful church I was in. Mm-hmm. But, that, but that... Speak loud. Yeshua knew... Yeshua knew... Who he was. Who he was. What his, what his uh, inheritance was. And what his inheritance was to be. And... So there was an urgency. And so there was an urgency for him. Assignments were to do, and there was an urgency, and he knew. There was an urgency, and he knew that he had three years to accomplish it when he actually entered it. You know, thirty years. But he had three and a half years to accomplish it. To to do that. Uh huh. And think about how many thousands of years that's been. That. Of everything that he knew he had to do, he got it done in those three and a half years. But there was that urgency in his spirit to get the word out to as many as he could. Yep. So they could go ahead and spread.